Am I on? There we are. Good morning, those streaming from home. I am freshly grateful this morning for the songwriters in our church, aren't you? We just thank God for Dave Fournier and for the others. We're going we're gonna to be in Psalm 16 this morning, um, but I just am so grateful. I know the hard work that goes into writing songs because I've failed many times. In fact, actually about a year and a half ago, or maybe a year ago, Dave actually shared the beginnings of that song with Melissa, my wife, and I. And so there's been many uh, times where he's worked on that in the interim. I'm just grateful for him. We're going to be in Psalm 16. For many of us, this is a life chapter that we return to many times, and I believe the Lord has a fresh word for us today in light of the year we've just been through. I've entitled this sermon, The God of Unshakable Confidence. Let's read in Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May God bless the preaching of his word. Well, there are a few things in my life that I find funnier than misplaced confidence. I can barely contain my giggles when my boys uh, strut their stuff after one of our workouts, flexing their swole muscles and expecting Melissa and I to be amazed at the size of their four and eight-year-old biceps. And that humorous reality has also led to some of my favorite tweets as well. Here's a couple of them. Lord, give me the confidence of those who comment on articles without reading beyond the headline. Lord, give me the confidence of a man armed with Wikipedia trying to explain history to a historian. You know who you are. Lord, give me the confidence of one out of eight men who statistically think they could win a point in a game of tennis against Serena Williams. Not happening. As funny as that is, there are some who would point to Christians' confidence and sneer and laugh. They'd say, aren't Christians so silly for rejoicing and singing and puffing out their chests based on some kind of invisible God? But even in the face of desperate years like this year, 
God tells us today that we can live with confident joy, brothers and sisters, not laughable confidence, wishful thinking, or misplaced faith, but real, dependable, stake your life on it, confidence. But I wonder, has your confidence in God been shaken by 2020? I mean, the whole world has shaken this year, right? No matter what country you're from. You may have really lost financial, political, or relational security this year. As pastors, honestly, we've felt the struggles of trying to lead the church through a very divisive time. For some of us in new ways this year. So the question for all of us is how has this year impacted your confidence in God? You may be looking at this year thinking, this new year, thinking, how can I look 2021 in the eyes and have confidence today? But despite the shaking of our world, this psalm calls us to courage because our God gives us unshakable confidence. God's calling us to courage today because our God gives us unshakable confidence. And when we get shaken up, we're tempted to look elsewhere. We're tempted to trust in political security. I need something now that I can trust in physical. We're tempted to shift to worldly pleasures for temporary satisfaction. I need something now that I can feel, that I can sense, that I can place my confidence in. But God is telling us today that when we do this, any shifting of our confidence from him to other things will only increase our insecurity and strip us of joy. This is a song of confident faith. But it began, if you recognize in verse 1, with a cry for deliverance. Preserve me, O God, right? David even later in verse 10 contemplates his own death. So why is he so stinking confident in these verses? Well, let's examine this call to confidence by looking at the source, the strength, and the result of our confidence. First, in the first few verses, we'll look at the source of our confidence. And here's the answer. What's the source? There's one source, and it's God himself. Nearly every verse in the beginning section of the psalm speaks of a single-minded devotion to God, of going all in with God, of saying, no matter what, my lot is in your hands and I have no good apart from you. In verse 2, he says that Lord in all caps is his Lord, lowercase, Yahweh, God is his king. So he's saying no matter what king challenges him or or promises him security, he forsakes them all and bows his knee in fealty to Yahweh alone. He goes on to say that his welfare, his good, what is good for him, is defined by what God says is good when he says, I have no good apart from you. And then from verse 2 to verse 3, David's delight in God spills over in his love and affection for the saints in the land. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. Not like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure kind of excellent, but godliness, character that reflects God. For those of you who didn't get that, that's just my upbringing there. 
But as soon as he mentions his delight for the excellence of the saints, he shifts and contrasts it with how he feels towards those in the world who are running after idols. Far from delighting in them, David won't even take their names on his lips. It's a bold statement. And here's a word for us, brothers and sisters. Our delight in God should produce a delight in the brethren. Not because of them directly, don't get that wrong, but because these are the brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the blood-bought children of God. They very well may be annoying and not share hardly any of your interests. You may have no other reason to hang out with them besides the fact that they trust in Jesus. But God's calling us to a delight in them that actually looks for evidences of God's grace in their life. An excellence that rises out of even the most unlovely person and beauty that reflects the majesty of the Creator. This psalm calls us delight in the godliness of our friends. And, and it also is a, a pretty amazing statement given what we know about Israel, isn't it? We know their groans, their flaws, their complaining. It's not always positive. This is a very, very charitable depiction of the people of God. This type of delighting requires eyes that are searching for and cherishing evidence of grace in our friend's life. This is something that Henry Cooper recently did in my life. He took the time to send a seven-minute video that particularly encouraged each of the pastors on how much God loved them. What was the net effect? It reminded me, first of all, that God was with me. He was doing things in my life, but it also bound me to Henry. I felt a deeper unity with him. And brothers and sisters, we need this, don't we? We need it in our marriages. We need it in our families. We need it in our church. We need this unity that results, this delighting in the excellence that God is working even in our broken midst. So do you delight in the saints in this way? Are you a grace-finding friend? On the flip side, do you envy the ungodly? Brothers and sisters, we may look around us and see people pursuing the world and see only prosperity, but their happiness is short-lived. The goodness of this world is an intoxicating flirt but a disastrous marriage leaves your life in shambles. Delight is the promise of following God. Sorrow is the end of all of our lives. Now, picking back up on the theme from land, of, of the land from verse 3, we read one of the most beautiful statements of contentment in verse 5 in the whole Old Testament. It says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And the tribes of Israel, you remember, received specific parts of the land as their inheritance. We just learned this in the Life of Joseph series. But here David takes this inheritance metaphor not to talk about earthly wealth or a promised land, but to speak of God himself. God is his promised land. God is his beautiful inheritance. God is his promised treasure. 
Remember, David began crying out for deliverance from a pressure in his life. But here, even in the midst of contemplating real danger, he can say, I'm blessed and privileged in ways I don't deserve. He can say, grace is why I am where I am today. Or as some of you like to say, I'm doing better than I deserve. Even though he feels insecure at the moment. You may feel insecure. You can say this too if you trust in Jesus. God is your inheritance and that cannot be shaken. Friends, there's a secret to contentment, to the courage and the confidence that we find in this passage that we long for. And it comes from placing yourselves full all in into God and saying, this is my inheritance. This is what I'm holding on to. This is what I'm clinging to with all my life. All else can fall. This is what matters. And friends, this is a gift, lest we be confused. We can't muster up this kind of faith and trust on our own. You see, David isn't a great example of a self-reliant, happy person. God gave him this faith. We must cry out to God for this kind of faith. But when we do, when we say, Lord, you hold my lot, you are my inheritance, the floodgates of heaven open and grace reigns on our lives. As we cry out to him, he fills us with confidence and contentment. God loves to take fearful and grumpy sinners and transform them into confident and content ones. Folks who are trusting in God and secure and satisfied. Now focusing on God as your only means of good, is your only good, means that you are viewing hardships even as under his rule and under his dominion. He's my king. He's my Lord. God holds my lot. Whatever happens comes from his loving hands. Even in trial, we can exult knowing that our king is in control and that he is our only good. Confidence, friends, is a fruit of the laser vision of the saints on our unstoppable God. That source is not self-reliance or self-confidence. It's God-confidence. And because God is the source of your confidence, friends, you can face this new year with courage. Let's look at the strength of our confidence now in verse 7. So verses 7 and 8 describe David's personal experience of God. He received God's guidance and also his help when he trusted in the goodness of God. He encountered fresh grace. He even received counsel from God in his heart when he was asleep. I've taught for 10 years, and let me just tell you, I've never been able to impart anything to a kid who was asleep in my classroom, though it happened all the time, sadly. But God is so powerful that he can be knitting in you faith and trust even as you sleep and forming you into an obedient child of God. And then finally, in, sorry, in verse 8, he describes sort of a journey as God goes before him as a guide and then holds his right hand, his fighting hand, as he battles and then even as the battle-worn soldier grows weary and can barely hold a sword, God holds his hand as the weary soldier fights on. And then, finally, in verse 8, we read him declare, sort of defiantly, 
I shall not be shaken. It's a stunning statement and a complete reversal from where he started. Started with, deliver me, O God. And he's arrived at, I shall not be shaken. How did he get there? How can we get there? By setting the Lord ever before him. Did you catch that in the verse? A fresh renewing of our vision of God, of encountering with God, of a daily allowing him to guide us in our life, to speak to us, to counsel us, and to help us. Now, the remaining verses contain two statements of joy that sandwich the most powerful statement about the strength of our confidence in verse 10. It says this, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's an amazing statement. How strong is the strength of our confidence? It's stronger than death itself. David believed that even in death, he could not be taken from God's hands. Even though at his time, there was little known about death. There was little known about heaven. We have more data now. He was able to say, the God who has been faithful will be faithful to me no matter where I travel. But David did die. But he remains, and he remains dead today. But we now know that he is experiencing the faithfulness of God in death with the gathered saints. Think of Hebrews 11, right? All the saints that have gone before us are experiencing this. And we can know, though, with granite certainty that we won't be shaken or abandoned in death. How? Well, not because we live better lives than he did or generally good lives overall, but because another would come who would be abandoned. There would be another who would be abandoned. His name is Jesus, and he lived in perfection as the truly holy one of this verse. When he gave up his life on the cross, he was forsaken by his father. He cried out as he pushed himself up on that cross with gasps of breath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was met with silence. So that now we can know without a doubt that we will never be, be shaken. We will never be forsaken and that he hears our cries for deliverance. He hears your 2020 cries of anguish and sorrow and anxiety. And he will not abandon us even in death. See, when Jesus died on the cross in our place a thousand years after this statement, he absorbed the full wrath that we deserve. Every single one of your sins, the punishment. He drank the cup of that wrath all the way to the bottom. He felt the overwhelming accumulation of all of our guilt and shame for each of our sins. He took it on himself so that we would not need to. You see, verse 10 is not ultimately about David. 
he declares, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter at Pentecost and Paul in city in Antioch in the book of Acts declare that this prophesied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, David is still in the grave, but there is one who did not remain in the grave. Though Jesus entered into our death and experienced the fullness of hell in our place for those who trust in him, on the third day he unstoppably rose. And in his resurrection, God's faithfulness was declared to the world. Jesus was vindicated and God followed through on this long ago promise that he would not allow his precious, holy, only begotten son experience eternal corruption. The grave could not hold the Holy One down. And this is reason for us to have confidence today, is it not? Our confidence is stronger than death, stronger than fear and anxiety, stronger than even 2020. We can look it in the eyes and say, you can't hold me down. I will not be shaken. Not because we're strong, because our Savior is. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we can know without a doubt that we're not forsaken, we're not shaken because of Jesus coming, dying, and rising. And now that resurrection is the proof that God will not abandon us in life or death. Our future is not death, but is eternal life awaiting the coming resurrection that we will experience too. God's calling us to courage today. Do you feel it? He's calling you to hear that call and to step forth in faith. I had a friend uh, who told me they were having deep struggles with anxiety. Really, uh, a few nights in a row where she couldn't sleep. And she was struggling with this que- the questions of the what-ifs with her children. Noticing behaviors in her children and just playing them out later in life. And just consumed with this. You know what helped her? She was finally able to sleep at night. She thought about the worst possible outcome of her what if. Now, that is the exact opposite of the counsel you'll receive from most counselors. In fact, if you have a counselor who says, just think about the bad stuff as much as possible, you probably want to discontinue that right away. Why did she find that reassuring? It was because even in that worst possible scenario, she realized that God could not be taken from her. Her inheritance was not her children. Her inheritance was God himself. That even death meant resurrection. Her focus shifted from the what if to the God of her life. She drifted off to sleep because she'd realized that when God is your confidence, even worse possible outcomes can't hold you down. Friends that are struggling with anxiety and with fear this morning, you need to know You're not alone. There are many this year reeling from this this seemingly endless trial. Your Savior's not put up with you, put out with you. Your Savior loves you. He's moved to compassion for you. He's calling you to not focus so much on the fears and the anxieties as much as to cast your vision on the Lord, to set the Lord before you anew today. Sometimes our fear and anxiety 
can come from just being consumed with the problem. The freedom that we want from the trial and the problem comes from a fresh vision of God. Perhaps God's calling you this year when you feel that racing heart, breathlessness where you can't catch your breath and your panic seizing you to set the Lord before you anew, to read this song and to say, the Lord is my portion, the Lord is my inheritance. May our confidence soar, even as we consider this in our darkest places. Finally, the result of our confidence. What should be the effect of all this glorious truth on us? It should lead us to be the happiest people on earth. Not just for the sanguine among us or for particular types. Joy for every Enneagram number, whatever that means. Not sure yet. I'm still researching it. But for every type of person, there's happiness and joy possible in Christ. We should be people who rejoice in suffering, delight in creation, who are known as a happy, worshiping community. But what sort of happiness? Roy Halladay was one of my favorite Phillies pitchers. Who can forget the summer of the four aces, right? Those of you who are sports fans. He pitched an unforgettable, perfect game. Is that me? Oh, man. The new pastor messing up. Let me see here. Is that better? I'll hold it. That works. So Roy Halladay pitched an unforgettable, perfect game uh, on May 29th of 2010. And this is the call on the radio. Scott Fransky, one of my faves. He said, steps back up onto the mound, tucks the baseball into his right hand, now into the glove, holds it in front of the letters, nods, Yes, the wind, the one-two pitch, swing, and a ground ball left side. Castro's got it, spins, throws, he got him! A perfect game for Roy Halladay, 27 up and 27 down. Halladay is mobbed as the mound, at the mound as the Phillies celebrate perfection tonight in Miami. And you hear that call, and it brings back a smile to most of our faces. And you'd think that this apex peak moment of Halladay's career would be the happiest moment of his life. But after pitching the perfect game and completing his normal 40-minute post-game workout ritual, which was crazy, he said this, journey's always better than the destination. For him, becoming one of the greatest pitchers in the game wasn't ultimately fulfilling in and of itself. He did find a sort of happiness in the perfect game, but even more so in the work of becoming great. But even that, sadly, would not last. Only seven years after this apex moment, Halliday's life ended when he crashed his personal aircraft. And after the wreckage was analyzed, it appears that he took his own life. It was a horrible tragedy. And I don't mean to minimize the pain that many felt and are feeling. Our whole city wept. But Halliday's life is an illustration of the emptiness of the world's offer of happiness. Even the greatest of earthly joys, friends, will come to an end. There may be a rush, there will be pleasure, but excitement will give way to emptiness. 
But in our passage, the type of happiness we're talking about is a whole nother order of happiness, a whole nother scales required to measure this type of joy and happiness. In verse 9, he says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. This is a, a, a gladness seeping down into his deepest parts that's not just surface deep. This is a happiness and joy that's whole body, symbol clashing, not just a smile, but dancing and singing and rejoicing kind of joy. This is overwhelming happiness and a posture of utter contentment. It's a challenging statement for many of us have, have barely felt this at times, but it's a promise for those who place their faith in God and pursue him as their confidence. Here's a word for all those who are feeling joyless this morning. Gladness is possible in Christ. Do you believe that? It comes from setting the Lord before you as your only good, submitting to him as your Lord, claiming him as your beautiful inheritance, and encountering his strengths in your battles and in your rest. It comes from facing unclear, dark futures with the power of the resurrection joy and gladness. We see remembering that God is the source and strength of our confidence causes a groundswell of joy in us that's unstoppable. It causes courage that can sing, happiness that's realistic, that doesn't ignore the holiday stories, that doesn't ignore the anxieties, but seeks to, instead of focusing on those things, set the Lord before us. And it gives way all the way to contemplating the joy of eternity in verse 11. Let's look there. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is, what type of joy? Fullness of joy. Where is this? At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Barnabas Piper is John Piper's son. He wrote a book called Hoping for Happiness. And he wrote about this verse saying this. This verse moves us from our present life to our eternal life with God. And just look at these words David uses. Joy, pleasures, fullness, forever. These words are jackhammers of happiness, shattering our misconceptions and breaking down the false barriers we have put around the truth that God wants us to be happy. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? God wants you to be happy. He's made you to rejoice and be a happy Christian content in him. He's given us all we need to find happiness himself. And not just sparse or fleeting happiness. In his presence is joy without lack or flaw. With him there is no end to pleasure. Do you see the surpassing happiness that is here, promised in this verse? This is happiness in the presence of God himself, deriving from being with God. This is what happens and results from our confidence being in God. A few weeks ago, I read a, uh, one of Gallup's most recent polls for 2020 on mental health. A depressing proposition, right? But I wasn't surprised when I read that people were struggling overall. But there was one category of people across all race 
and age demographics that reported better mental health at the end of 2020 than at the beginning. It was those who weekly attended church. They were the only group that's doing better in mental health now than at the beginning of the year. That mental health and joy and happiness that we want comes from our relationship with God, from daily communing with him in his word, experiencing him give us counsel as he guides us in our lives, and as we gather together to receive the word and worship together with the saints who are excellent. Those of us who can gather, brothers and sisters, let's be faithful to gather weekly and not just when it's convenient. Brothers and sisters who are required to stream, let's be locked in on that live stream. Let's pray before and after. Let's text our friends after the service for prayer and for updates. Let's be all in in our pursuit of setting the Lord before us and worshiping him. The promise is joy and happiness that will flow from this. Let's place our confidence in the God who is our only good. Let's claim him as our only portion. Let's call him our beautiful inheritance. Let's shout out the excellence of God's grace in one another's lives. Let's look to 2021 with expectant happiness and not with grumbling and complaining. Let's be confident, happy people, not because we are the best, not because we are confident people in and ourselves, but because our God is worthy of confidence. Amen? Let's approach our new year that way together. Amen.